This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dr. Dawn on Careers. Welcome to Dr. Don on Careers on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. And by day, I lead career coaching for the executive MBAs at the Wharton School. I'm also a licensed psychologist, former corporate recruiter, and author of the book, Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and Seize Success. We are excited to be here today with a fantastic guest. Plus, we have a little special treat for you after the break. So you're going to want to stay tuned for this whole show. And a big shout out to Dion Simpkins, our engineer, and Dana Cash, our producer, for making this show sound so fabulous each week. So, hey, switchers are the future of work. And guess what? The future of work is here. Here. So I'm very excited to welcome back today's guest to the show, Dr. Michelle Weiss. Michelle is a leading expert on designing the future of learning and work in the age of longevity. Currently, she is an entrepreneur in residence and senior advisor at Imaginable Futures. And prior to that, she was chief in- in- innovation officer at Strata Education Network's Institute for the Future of Work. A former Fulbright scholar, Michelle is a graduate of Harvard University, earned her master's degree and doctorates from Stanford. And today I'm incredibly excited to be speaking with Dr. Michelle Weiss about her new book, Long Life Learning, How to Prepare Yourself for Jobs That Don't Even Exist. Welcome back to the show, Michelle. Thank you so much, Don. So First off, congrats on your book. I've had it pre-ordered for the last few months and was excited to have the opportunity <laughs> to read it over the Thanksgiving break. And first, I'm just going to say this is a must read for anyone who's earning a paycheck, um, you know, pretty much anyone. But I'm curious, uh, Michelle, who was your target audience that maybe you had in mind when you were writing this book? Yeah, it's interesting as as you were introducing your show, you know, you talk about how the future is now. And I was thinking the future is now and the future is long and it's deeply uncertain. And so it really is for all job seekers, uh, the as the audience, the focal point of who I who I kind of home in on in the book are the folks who are currently struggling the most in the labor market, struggling to switch, struggling to get a toehold in the labor market. But the reason for that is because it has implications for all of us who are going to have to navigate so many more transitions in that deeply uncertain uh, future of work. So I honestly, I think everybody needs to read this book. Um, I I, I can just, you know, I feel like uh, if the, New York Times reviews it. They're going to say it was terrifying. It was inspiring. It was uplifting. You know how they do these because it was all of those things. And you start realizing that, wow, so much has changed. So much is changing and that we all need to prepare. And then you start to look at the system, which we'll talk about in, in a few minutes. And you realize, wow, the system's not ready for this. So, mm-hmm. so you have, um, you know, you have this, this, kind of journey of emotions when you're reading the book of, of, wow, this is exciting. And wow, this is a little bit scary. So, you know, one of the, one of the scariest sentences in the book that you write is, and I'll just, it's just, I'm going to read it and everyone's going to be like, wow. Yeah. The robots are coming. <laughs> that to me was so terrifying. What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> they're actually, you know, they're, as many of you all know, I mean, the robots are here and um, it's, You're it's scaring me even more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny. I just, uh, like many folks um, have watched uh, the documentary, The Social Dilemma recently. And I mean, that is a truly kind of terrifying uh, documentary because it just shows us the way in which technology has outpaced our ability to, um, sort of manage it and and make sure that it's being shaped and channeled in the right directions. It has kind of um, gotten out of our control. And so much of that is based on this world of artificial intelligence and computerization and automation. 
Um, so there are really deeply kind of worrisome aspects about our future, but the, the sort of my internal mandate as I was writing this is it's very easy to write a doomsday future of work book. And I feel like it's been done many, many times over. And there's a lot of emphasis on the it, um, the number of people who are going to be automated out of their jobs. Like there's a lot of attempts to quantify what's going on here. And my hope was to really kind of home in on the people and their stories and the, and the barriers they're facing. Because once we actually get out of this really amorphous space of the robots or you know, automation or AI, which are almost just too big and hard to grasp um, and paralyzing as well. So if you, but if you focus on the people and the, the kinds of things they are surfacing as the pain points, uh, that's the way we actually get to work. I love that you do that in the book. Of course, the first, the first part is about, you know, a lot of what's happening. And then the, the majority of the book is about solutions and it's about how we need to come together with, with different systematic solutions to, to partner and integrate things. And I love that because you also, as you mentioned, include stories, you include a lot of resources and you talk about companies who are doing some really innovative and interesting things. And I think that's, that's the hope part, you know, you scare us a little bit. You're like, okay, all these great things are being done, which is really inspiring. And I want to talk about some of those because I think one of the, the biggest points in the book that was for me was that, that people don't know these exist and people don't understand how the, the future of education is changing and what new options there are um, or how to evaluate them. And so that's what your book does is it really, really kind of hones in on those things. So, hey, if you're just tuning in, we are here with Dr. Michelle Weiss, who is a leading expert on designing the future of learning and work. And we are talking about her brand new book, Long Life Learning, How to Prepare Yourself for Jobs That Don't Even Exist. And we're super excited to have Michelle here today talking about her book, but, but more importantly, talking about things that you can do and you can think about right now to prepare yourself for the future of work. And Michelle, the, the term that, that you talk about in this book when it comes to preparing for the future of work and education um, is non-consumers. So can you, can you talk about what that word means and maybe give some, um, you know, examples of what is a non-consumer? Yeah, that actually is a concept that comes from Clayton Christensen's theories of disruptive innovation. I had a real just sort of privilege to, to work with him and, and co-author a book with him. But the main concept here is that he was trying to understand why it is that companies find it so difficult to sustain success, right? And when you think about some of the big monolithic companies that were once at the peak um, and at sort of the apex of, of, of their journeys, you start to wonder why it is that they can't kind of maintain that status. And that's what, um, that's what Christensen was trying to figure out. And as he studied different industries and he started with the disk drive industry, but it really correlates to um, any industry. He moved it on to looking at the steel industry and education, what have you. And the idea is that in any, in any domain, you have companies who are sort of at the center of the market, who are the incumbents, and they are driven by incentives to make better products and services for their best customers. And it is this idea of this kind of sustaining trajectory. When he talks about a disruptive trajectory, it's these folks who come in from the margins and offer people who cannot afford the offerings that are in that sort of center of the market. So if you think about like the first um, iteration of computers, those mainframe computers were exorbitantly expensive and they required really high skills in order to, to sort of figure out how to use them. When the first personal computers started emerging on the market, they attended to these non-consumers. These were people for whom the alternative was really nothing at all. So they weren't users of those mainframes or even mini computers. They were children. They were hobbyists. And so they were 
perfectly delighted by these really actually crummy personal computers. And so it's because they had a different level of performance that they were looking for, and they had nothing else to compare it to. And really a lot of the innovations that we see that have disrupted different industries start off in that space of really attending to people who can't afford the thing at the sort of center uh, of the industry um, and in fact, slowly improve over time. And so when I'm talking about non-consumers of education, these are the people who don't have access to the kinds of flexible, convenient workforce aligned programs that they need to advance. And they have maybe also already tried the existing traditional solutions and have opted out or have dropped out or have been kicked out or have had to um, forego that opportunity in order just to make money in, you know, just to, to survive. And so those are the people that I am kind of most interested in as we think about the kinds of infrastructure and systems we need to build for all of us to thrive in the future. And so, you know, when you talk about non-consumers um, and, you know, you, you talk a lot about traditional education and that, you know, the college degree doesn't really give you the social mobility boost that it once did. There's over 4,700 colleges. And, you know, in fact, um, while most chief academic officers believe that, that schools adequately prepare students for work, very few business leaders, as a matter of fact, 11% um, agree with this. And I love, I love one of the um, examples that you give in your book where, where I think um, students from two prestigious colleges were given, given a wire, a battery, <laughs> and a light bulb, and these were engineering grads, and they couldn't come up with uh, a way to make it work. Um, and, and this goes to the idea of transfer. So, so not only are our universities or colleges not catering to, to the non-traditional candidates, which, which now are about 70% of students, but, but you know, what they're teaching is not transferable to the workplace. So, and obviously this is not every college and this is not every um, you know, academic institution. But the point being in your book is that is that um, you know the the market has changed and and maybe traditional colleges haven't kept up. So can you speak more about this? Yeah. So that concept that you're talking about is a concept that people know as far transfer, and it's the idea that you take a concept that you've learned in one domain and are able to apply it and transfer it to a totally different domain and use it to solve problems there. And I think implicitly we believe in higher education that we are cultivating this kind of transfer. And the, the challenge is that our learners aren't aren't actually, uh, it's, it's one of the hardest nuts to crack within education. And part of it is because of the ways in which we deliver education today, we're not actually teaching these skills really well. Some of the forward thinking institutions that are incorporating things like design thinking and, um, and different sorts of engineering programs, uh, they are working on this kind of interdisciplinarity and this ability to kind of um, make connections ac across structures better. Uh, but in general, it's, it's, it's illuminated in these fascinating ways. And that, that one video clip that you're talking about, it was MIT and Harvard grads who, who couldn't, they were in their caps and gowns and they couldn't light a light bulb from those small, just pieces of, of um, those, those few pieces. And um, one of my favorite examples, it's not in the book, but um, uh, Eric Mazur, who's, who's a, um, a teacher, a professor at, at Harvard actually tells this story where he was teaching physics, you know, introductory physics um, and all throughout the semester, he was using examples in baseball to illuminate different, you know, concepts in physics. And on the final exam, he ran out of different questions to ask about baseball. So he asked some questions about football. And, and the class just, you know, went into a mutiny because they, they were so confused. They had been understanding all of these within the context of baseball. And they thought it was deeply unfair that suddenly they were being asked to sort of translate those concepts into, into football. And it's, and it's just like these kinds of things that, um, 
that almost sound outlandish when you hear them, but this is how, you know, we have, uh, it's this sort of industrialization of education where this is the way we have moved people through this time-based system where we teach to the test, where we, where we do a lot of rote memorization, a lot of, you know, lecture-based delivery. We're not actually teaching them how to apply concepts and this is, this is what actually David Epstein wrote an entire book on, you know, facilitate this idea of range. We just don't, don't do this well. It's so true, Michelle. I'm, I'm, I'm actually having flashbacks to my, my, I don't know, third grade and, and the multiplication tables and just yeah. reciting these over and over and over. And, you know, I know they're coming up with, with new creative ways to do math. Well, they're probably not new, but they're, they're teaching newer ways to to do math in the classroom today which is very different but it is it's it's really true that um you know once we we, we went up to 12 and once you get over 12 i you know i can't do multiplication <laughs> because we didn't go any further <laughs> so it, it, i it, it is kind of that concept and and i think that the world and the market is is moving much more quickly than our, our education systems. But that's, that's where like the, the part of your book that comes in that, that inspires so much hope because you talk about all of these new programs that are coming up that are not only non-traditional programs of education and learning, but for non-traditional students. So students who are, are older, students who are families, students who are going to be working and doing school part-time. And so I wanna, I definitely wanna talk about, about those because this is the part that I think um, we all are going to be inspired by, but also that we need to know about because as you point out in your book, we are going to be in an education loop through our whole lives. It's not going to be that we go to school for a short period of time as we're embarking on our careers and that's it. It's going to be long life learning as your book points out. Hey, if you're just tuning in, we're here with Dr. Michelle Weiss, who is leading the creation of a new ecosystem that connects learners to more targeted educational experiences that fit the needs of employers. A former Fulbright Scholar, graduate of Harvard and Stanford, I'm excited to have the opportunity to speak with her about her research and predictions for the future of work from her new book, Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Exist Yet. And please stick around because after the break, we have a very fun holiday treat coming up and you don't want to miss it. So let's talk about, let's talk about, um, you have five criteria, Michelle, that, that need to be a part of this new ecosystem in order for this to work. And we don't need to get into them, you know, in in depth, but let's give a highlight and then we'll kind of talk about the pieces that I think the audience will really want to know, which is what are some of those companies out there and what should you be checking out? So, so what does that ecosystem look like? And, um, and then we'll kind of dig in a little bit deeper. Yeah, so the, the whole idea of an ecosystem is just to sort of lay it in contrast to systems. So right now we have a lot of systems. We have a K-12 system, a higher ed system, a workforce training system. None of them really speak to one another very well. The, the communication is, is we, we talk about competencies and skills differently. Employers don't know how to make sense of, of these different kinds of skills that we're developing etc. And instead of kind of plowing ahead in these silos or working in parallel, the idea is that everything is interdependent. We need to actually start behaving differently if we're going to navigate 20 or 30 job transitions in the future. And so the five principles that really need to be true for a new learning ecosystem to exist is that it's just that we need to have better career navigation. We need to have better wraparound support services, 360 degree kind of services for more mature learners who have a lot of life that gets in the way. We need more precise educational pathways. It can't just be these constant one-year certificates or two-year or four-year degrees. Many of us aren't going to want to go back and get more degrees. And even though we have a degree, we are going to have to retool. We're also going to need that learning to be integrated with our work lives. It can't always be something that is demanded of us on top of everything else going on in our lives. So how do we make more experiential, work-based, hands-on learning opportunities? And then how do we get toward fairer and more transparent hiring? How do we get to more skills-based hiring where we're not always basing our hires based on pedigree? 
So, so this is this is complex, and I think one of the challenges you lay out in your book is that a lot of companies are doing some great things, but the challenge is that is that they're not integrated, they're not partnering with with what others are doing. So, so these are emerging, which is good, but but eventually we're going to need to get to a point where these are also integrated. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that that I've been looking at on the the show. We did a series in October around what companies are doing to upskill not only their current employees, but to create opportunities for those out, um, you know, out of the workforce to build the skills they need to be marketable with the future of work. But but some of the stats in your book around what what most employers are doing around upskilling was pretty pretty dire. I mean, most are not doing any kind of upskilling or reskilling and the training that they're offering is mostly around compliance around, you know, uh, workplace safety and things like that, which obviously benefit the company more than the, the employee. But, um, you know, not only that, but the other systemic problem is that even if they offer tuition benefits, that employees don't have time to take advantage and have no idea where to even apply those. So, so what are some of the things people can think about if they're in this situation right now saying, I know I need to upskill. My company's not offering me anything that is, is tangible. And I have these tuition benefits, but I just, between time and taking care of my family and transportation, I just, I can't make that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the amazing thing here, right, is we all kind of know we need to gain or acquire some new skills, um, you know, in order to stay competitive. But where do we actually go to acquire those skills when we kind of, even as we look at, you know, maybe our employer offers some tuition reimbursement program, generally those are, you know, regionally accredited institutions that are offering what we already know to kind of, you know, be in the sort of same 200 degree programs that are offered at any university. But some of these emerging demands in the labor market aren't offered, you know, these kinds of programs aren't offered at, at traditional schools. But where do we go? And how do we know that that thing is legitimate? And how do we know that an employer will be able to make sense of these, you know, different kinds of learning experiences and on ramps? And that's the thing is like, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of solutions that are out there. I mean, there's a huge ed tech and workforce tech market out there. There are hundreds and hundreds of solutions that are being built. The problem is if you just bumped into anyone on the sidewalk and asked them about probably any of the solutions that I mentioned in the book, they've probably never even heard of any of those, right? Or maybe they've heard of one. I was even talking to, um, a friend of mine who who read the book and she's in venture capital in education technology. And she said to me, oh, I didn't know about like so many of these groups, right? And so if we don't even know about them internally as, you know, as practitioners and leaders in the field, how in the world is, you know, some person who is struggling, who has just been laid off, going to make sense of the now over 738,000 credentials that are out there? And so this is the thing is like, all of those pieces need to be knit together in a way that is really accessible so that someone can say, okay, I actually need to know enough data science to get a job in this field, then I'm gonna go to Colaberry and, and take that on-ramp. Or I, I know I need a little bit more in advanced manufacturing, so I'm gonna take Merit America's course. These are things that people don't know how to, how to access and they don't know how to get the right kind of sort of human touch and trusted guidance that they need from someone who can help them through this decision-making process. All of that is the stuff we're bumping up against today. These are the things that our workers and our learners and our un and underemployed folks are telling us that they are, are running into. And so these are the things we need to solve for. Well, and not only that, Michelle, but, but, but the question becomes, do if, if, we don't recognize them um, as consumers. Do employers recognize them as as credentials that they value um, in the workplace? Because I think that's that's the solution that right. you're trying to solve. Is is that it's not just about about learning these skills, but but then you go to apply. And this is always my pet peeve: is is that you know an employer says, "Well, that's great, you got that credential," but but have you applied it and and have you done it? Yep. And so 
that is, that is the crux of, of, um, you know, my frustration personally. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, the even more terrifying piece of this is that most employers, most companies have absolutely no sense of the internal talent that they have right underneath their fingertips. They don't know the skills that, uh, that their workforce have, and they don't know if maybe some portion of that workforce could be upskilled into the jobs that they're imagining for the future. So a lot of these companies have these strategic goals for the next five or 10 years, but they're constantly looking to the outside. They're always kind of recruiting externally, trying to find, find those folks who have the exact um, you know, criteria that they're looking for. Meanwhile, there are folks internally who may have 60%, 70% of what it takes to get there, and they just need that investment in them um, to, to build them toward, you know, and they need greater transparency. Most folks who are within a company don't know precisely how they're supposed to move forward. That internal mobility within a company is really hard to suss out. And so this is, this is, this is where I think we're going to see a lot of change in the next few years, because this sort of like war on talent is just not going to be able to continue in this way where we're always finding people from outside to bring within. I so agree. And I definitely want to dig into that a lot more in the second half of the show because because this idea of buying talent versus developing it is not only leaving a lot of people behind and, um, as you pointed out, people who are are almost there, um, but but it's creating a situation where um, not only do people not, not know how to navigate internally in a company, but I think in a lot of companies, it's discouraged. You know, people get pigeonholed into, you know, a, a role that they're in and companies can't see them in new ways. And I think that is something that's definitely going to need to change. Hey, if you're just tuning in, we are talking with Michelle Weiss about her book, Long Life Learning. Um, and this is available right now on Amazon and many other booksellers. And I highly encourage you to get it because it you are in a career of any kind, if you're an educator, if you are working as a talent leader of any type in a company, which, which um, is a vast, vast title, you want to understand what is happening with the, the development of education and the future of work in this book is completely eye-opening, so you'll want to get that. But we do have to go to a quick break right now, but you're going to want to stay tuned because we have a very, very fun holiday treat for you. When we come back, you're listening to Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham, and we'll be right back. Be a STEM of job search that earns success for me. Practice interviewing, find LinkedIn contact, strong profile Clean up social media, tailor covered letter daily. I don't know anyone. What about your friends? They must know someone. And make sure that planning is key. (laughs) The 10th step of job search that earns success for me. Negotiate the offer, value proposition, plan to get there early. Nail the LinkedIn headline. Research. Easy to have, hire a coach, and recalling that planning is key. The 11th step of job search that earned success for me. Thanking those who helped me sleeping before signing. Unique selling points, inside referral, second level contacts, using action verbs, daily network. Just do it! I don't like big crowds. Even phone chats work. Tune in to Career Talk. Switchers. And become the 
Boys from, from the, the Dream Team. team. Uh, okay, what does everybody think about singing through it one more time? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers. On Business Radio. Welcome back to Dr. Dawn on Careers Series XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Dawn Graham, and we are very excited today to welcome back today's guest, Dr. Michelle Weiss, who is an expert on all things future of work. And we are talking about her brand new book, Long Life Learning, How to Prepare Yourself for Jobs That Don't Even Exist. So, Michelle, where can people find your book? Sure. Uh, the book is available on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Porchlight, Books a Million, um, on Wiley's website. But I think pretty much every major bookseller is is selling it. Fantastic. Um, one of the things I want to dig into, Michelle, is this idea of of hiring, which I know you cover in your book and you, you know, you talk about that hiring needs to be more transparent. And again, one of the stats that really, you know, shook me was that more than 6 million jobs now require a college credential that didn't before. And you, you, you call this up credentialing. Why is this happening? And, and what, what is the point of this? Yeah, so the, the easiest way to understand this phenomenon is just to remember that when we go back to just say the 1970s, only about a third of our population would actually graduate from high school and go on to get some post-secondary education. A lot of folks decided to go into work directly from high school and could actually gain a pretty good, comfortable lifestyle doing that. Um, and so we had fewer we just had fewer universities in general. Like if you look back into the 1950s, as an example, we had closer to less than 2000. And then all of a sudden kind of over time, especially with the, you know, the GI bill, you see this proliferation of universities all over the country. You know, in 2012, we peaked up to about 4,700 different degree granting universities. And when you think about the, um, and, 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 and then at the same time, the number of folks who were graduating from high school, um, about 70% of them were going on to get a post-secondary education. So earlier when fewer people were actually getting a degree, it was an easier signal to understand for an employer, right? They could kind of just sort of equate that person has some sort of capability and talent and maybe some grit to be able to do the work ahead. And it was a, it was a fairly useful proxy. What has happened over time is it's become a lot harder to differentiate and distinguish the difference between one degree, the same degree from one institution and from another, right? We have different tiers of universities, but that doesn't necessarily help employers who can barely tell the difference between a fake and a real university. They've actually done studies on this. So it's really hard for, um, for employers to keep using just the bachelor's degree as that kind of sorting mechanism. So what they've done over time is they've asked for more, more degrees, right? And you know, even today we're asking for master's degrees when those jobs maybe never even required uh, a bachelor's degree. And so there's obviously kind of a, <laughs> Uh, a threshold, like a ceiling to which you can use this because we can't start asking for PhDs for, for jobs that never required these skills in the first place. Um, and so now this is why you see a lot of this kind of trending conversation around skills-based hiring because employers are realizing that even this up-credentialing phenomenon is not benefiting them. They're not getting the talent that they need. They're dissatisfied. And so we're trying to get better now at articulating skills and and sort of from the demand side and then also from the supply side of training providers and learning providers being able to articulate and translate these skills into the language of the labor market. So so I think people are carrying over then these these kind of outdated ideas of I need I need to get a college degree and that's what companies value. But I think companies still, as you mentioned, value um, 
to the extent that it's it's maybe a differentiator for them in their list of requirements. Um, but now we're moving into this period where that's just not reasonable. I think employers are recognizing that just because you have a four-year degree, you don't have necessarily have that skill transfer they're looking for. So things are in the middle of, of changing. But what? let's talk about some of those solutions that are emerging that, that people who are in this space of, I know I need to upskill, but I know that a four-year degree is not in my, my either my financial um, ability or my time ability. What are some of those emerging education opportunities that people should know about? Yeah, I think I want to kind of um, touch one of the points you made earlier as we were talking about transfer and, and the ways in which we cultivate our, our workers today, right? It's based on these sort of, you know, the rote memorization, these sorts of practices that don't really lend themselves well to, to the workforce today. When we think about the future of work, we need people who can be agile, you know, nimble thinkers who can adapt, who can, who can kind of um, quickly assess a really strange and uncertain situation and start to apply methods to, to solve problems there, right? And if we just, when you think about those skills, and I think one of the challenges when we talk about upskilling or reskilling or retooling, it tends to sound a lot like technical skills or those kinds of vertical skills that we need. You know, you need to have some grasp of JavaScript or be able to do some data science or understand some AI principles. But really, a lot of employers are actually demanding um, what we know as those kinds of, you know, different kinds of workforce competencies that, that are those more human skills, the you know, systems thinking, critical thinking, communication, collaboration. And so the kinds of solutions that I'll talk about in a sec are ways in which we're trying to remediate for that challenge of broadening people's skills. But if we also just think back to the kinds of um, uh, changes we need to make in our K-12 system, if you think about that traditional way of learning, we are teaching folks to be highly individualistic. Um, you know, you, you solve problems on your own when you're taking a test, you never collaborate with others because that's some form of cheating, right? We don't teach when we all went to college and had to do a, a group-based project. A lot of us hated it because it was the first time we were, our grades were dependent on other folks, right? And this is the way in which we are cultivated as, as learners. And so no wonder we have so much difficulty cultivating teams and positive cultures in the, in the workplace. And so right now you see this kind of remediation going on where um, different kinds of companies like Mersion, as an example, <clears throat> they offer AR and VR based, you know, um, simulations where people can practice some of these more human skills about providing feedback or receiving feedback or negotiating or understanding implicit biases, right? And analyzing themselves and looking at themselves so that they have greater self-awareness. So there's real hope in these kinds of, of burgeoning technologies. But at the same time, we just have to remember that when we think about things like FAR transfer, these are skills that really take a lot of time to cultivate. Um, I, I mentioned David Epstein before, and he, 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 he interviews so many um, researchers and academics who talk about the deepest kind of learning happens very slowly, and it often looks like poor performance in the near term. So when we think about this in the context of the workforce, it's really, it's really complicated because employers want people who can perform immediately, right? And, mm -hmm. and show yep. their value. But some of these, some of the actual skills that they need the most are those ones that are gonna take some time. You can't just do it in six weeks. Um, but we have a lot of on-ramp kind of programs and alternative pathways that are, that are emerging, that are trying to do this kind of human and technical skills training. And they're, they're valiant efforts and they're much needed in the market. But sort of, if we just kind of go up one level and look at this kind of, you know, from the 30,000 foot level, we have to remember that if we're, if we're gonna be nurturing this kind of lifelong learning over this longer work life, how do we do this in a more strategic way so that we are 
building in those transfer skills in a way that it's not just, hey, go over here and take this coding boot camp, right? Like it's, we, we have to do both at once. And this is, this is the real challenge ahead. Yes. And I mean, and we have to get educators on board. We have to get employers on board and somebody has to, to fund this. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of, of obstacles because um, everything's operating right now in somewhat of a silo. But, but as, we, as we're kind of coming into the tail end of the show, Michelle, I, I want for people listening who are, are, you know, feeling a lot of emotions around this, you know, I, I think you tap into some great stories in your book around people who feel like, hey, this system's rigged. There's, there's no time to, to get an education while I'm managing multiple jobs, trying to care for a family. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the, the system probably didn't work for a lot of people before. So they think, why would I put myself through this again? And, you know, a lot of these, these really, um, they're very real obstacles for people that that need to be solved for. So for people out there who are, are feeling this, um, and oh, and age bias is another one. I, I probably get at least you know an email a week about about people who are who feel like they're not getting opportunities because of their age. So there there's all of these things going on. And where can people start if they say, okay? I've, I've, you've opened my eyes. I know I need to upskill. I know that it doesn't have to be a four-year institution or it doesn't have to be a master's degree. Where, where do I start? And I know there's not, you know, a database of all of these great options. And that's kind of what you're, you're pushing for is that we need to make it easier, but, but what is step one for people? Yeah. Step, step one is, is really um, that self-awareness check and the, the kind of cataloging of skills um, that that you have today and it's it's hard it's a hard activity because sometimes we sort of dismiss some jobs that we don't think of as important or they don't look good on a resume but actually you've accumulated some really important skill sets through that work or even through caregiving responsibilities right you think about the intensive amount of caregiving responsibilities close to 73 percent of the workforce has some form of of caregiving activity that takes them away from being kind of a more productive worker. Um, when we think about those kinds of capabilities we're developing that are informal, because uh, they're not formally recognized through a credential, we need to kind of, we need ways to catalog those and, and sort of surface those. And so there are some, uh, because of the, the COVID pandemic, there are actually some, um, offerings that are being um, enabled for free. Um, MZ, as an example, has a a tool called Skills Match. There are different kinds of um, resume builders where they they are surfacing some of these skills for people. There are different coalitions that are being built as well um, to to start knitting together navigation services to these educational pathways to employers. Um, things like the Skill Up Coalition, which is working with a lot of different stakeholders um, to help people navigate a way forward. Um, so there are there are um, exciting um, um, developments, but the the thing that you're pointing to, Don, that is that is a challenge today is because we're in this kind of nascent stage. So much of the burden lies on the individual. And a lot of this information is hard, hard to access. And a lot of the innovations in the education technology and workforce tech space are sort of right now framed as B2B opportunities. There's not a lot of kind of B2C opportunities, but there are, you know, there are these different kinds of things that are emerging on the, on the horizon. Things like career karma is an example where you can kind of get better access to reviews of different kinds of coding boot camps or these different, different sorts of boot camps that exist and has some consumer reviews. So they're trying to bring some transparency. Um, but again, this is, this is hard for people to navigate because we don't have, have a place to go to. Um, MIT and New Profit 
have launched a, uh, a future of work grand challenge um, with XPRIZE. And so what they're trying to do is test out whether some of these resources that are needed for a better functioning ecosystem could be built at a local level. So they're, they're piloting, you know, a handful of job placement centers around the country where, you know, where people can go to get all these pieces, the wraparound support services, some of those more precise educational pathways. And, and they're, um, they're using the same lens that we've developed um, to inform this, this kind of grand challenge that where the winners will be able to, you know, these tech providers and um, job placement centers will be able to kind of prove out that, that when we knit it together, job seekers succeed. So we're early days, unfortunately, um, but hopefully, um, you know, some of the solutions in the book um, are something that uh, readers can kind of look up and, and kind of do some, do some more digging into. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to SiriusXM channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. And if you want more information on the show or just great career tips and job search advice, you can follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Dr. Don Graham. We're excited today to be here with Dr. Michelle Weiss talking about the future of work and her book, Long Life Learning, Caring for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet, which is available now at all booksellers online. Um, so do check that out. So, so obviously, Michelle, something that's really near and dear to me is, is career management and helping people understand how to do all of these things that, as you pointed out, are um, unfortunately the burden of the individual right now. But I'm, I'm just curious as I'm thinking back to my multiplication tables and how ingrained they are in my head. Why, why are we not teaching career management skills in schools? Like, like at any level, um, mm-hmm. it's even at the university level where people are, um, as you point out in your research, uh, the majority of people are going to school for their career and to enhance their marketability and, and job opportunities, but we do not teach it. It's a peripheral. It's, you know, a nice to have. Um, and I, I don't understand um, that. What, what is your take on that? It's just a huge amount of inertia in the system. Um, and the incentives are structured so that, uh, we are tethered to a time-based model as opposed to a performance-based model. And this is true both in the higher ed space where everything is tied to our Title IV dollars in this way. Uh, it same goes for K through 12. It is about checking the boxes on accountability and time and how much time you're spending with the learner as an indicator of you know, of, of a grasp on, on a subject. Um, so there's real, you know, there are some schools, right, that are um, really trying to experiment more with competency-based education that's still really tough to do within the confines of a credit hour-based system. Um, but the incentives are just simply not aligned to, to experiment what happens with most innovations. Um, and this is what I talk about when I talk about disruption early on in the book is even if a school sees something that they should integrate, they know that it's some innovative solution that they need to embed into their, into their process. It is so difficult because of the tug of the resources, the processes and the priorities that are ready in, in motion, that even if you try to embed that innovative solution within your existing organization, it ends up being kind of smushed and squashed and sort of pressed in different ways where it doesn't get to, it doesn't get to exist in that original form. Um, and so this is, this, is, this is why you see different universities playing with different kinds of autonomous units where they're trying to put things in stealth mode and grow them as more like startup ventures uh, where they might be able to kind of grow without having to succumb to the same sorts of regulations in, in, you know, in, in their existing market. Um, but this is a huge, this is a huge opportunity for us, you know, as we think about those, those skills we need to develop. I was talking with um, some entrepreneurs who, who were citing um, 
uh, Sandy Pendleton's work over at MIT who has studied <laughs> that sometimes the, like the number one source of conflict in the workplace, when you like ultimately get down to it, it's something that you learn in kindergarten. It's this idea of taking turns when you're speaking. And it's, it's, it's kind of like this major source of strife within organizations when, when, when people are going in to kind of mitigate, you know, and, and do some professional development. This is kind of one of those core issues. And it's, again, we learn these things in kindergarten and then kind of from first grade onward, it's a different kind of shift towards that kind of highly individualistic learning. But, you know, I think that to me is just sort of the most exciting opportunity for educators is to, is to think about how we get at that more interdisciplinary learning and teach, teach that far transfer early, early on. Um, my biggest fear right now for online education today is that with everyone trying to shift their curricula now into an online um, environment, I'm so worried about all of the resources and time that's going to be put into trying to replicate what is going on in the classroom in the online experience um, and not completely rethinking our approach to dismantling academic silos, interdisciplinary silos, you know, those disciplinary silos to say, hey, what if we just try to measure curiosity. How do you measure curiosity? Or how do you measure unhappiness? This is something that a new university is trying to do in London called the London Interdisciplinary School, where they're trying to just ask problem statements. And in the context of solving that problem, learners use methods from very different disciplines on how to solve that problem. We need to do more of that because nothing we encounter in the future is going to be a math problem or a physics problem. It's going to be highly and deeply wicked and interdisciplinary. Yes, no doubt these are big, big challenges to solve. Um, your book has an amazing uh, plan for, for how we can move forward and there is yet a lot of work to be done. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Can you let us know one more time where people can find you and find your book? Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. Um, the book is available on any bookseller's uh, site. Um, and you can reach me on Twitter and LinkedIn through the handle rwmichelle. Or you can go to my website, which is riseanddesign.io. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Michelle. And for those of you who are just tuning in, long life learning, preparing for jobs that don't even exist yet. Put that on your reading list for sure. And a big thank you to Dion and Dana and, of course, all of our listeners and followers who come to us on Thursdays at noon to listen to Dr. Dawn on Careers on SiriusXM 132. We will see you next time. from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.